Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you, and Lord, I ask what we sing this morning will be the prayers of our hearts. Father, I pray that Jesus, Lord, come and reveal your glory to us. Speak to us through your word. Fill us with your love and your grace. Make our hearts overflow in gladness for our Savior this morning. Lord, speak to us, I pray. Lord, may it be real, may it be tangible that we can grab onto this morning and endure. Father, strengthen us. Lord, open your eyes, shine your light, lift our spirits, I pray. Lord, we've come to worship you this morning. And Father, we do it now through the preaching of your word. Lord, I ask that you will help me not to speak in error, but to be your instrument this morning. And Father, that your words will not fall on deaf ears, but Lord, it will penetrate hearts this morning. Lord, as you do it for us, we pray that you'll do it for the Shia people of Algeria. Over a million people who are trapped in the false religion of Islam. Father, we pray every week for so many people who are lost in a false religion, who are burdened with this with this life that tells them that they can make it, that they can do these things and reach heaven. Father, I pray that you will open their eyes this morning, that you will show them that there is nothing that they can do, but Jesus has already done it. I pray that you will give them new hearts to love Jesus, not just as a good man or a prophet, but of the Son of God, the one who came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, raise up men among the Shia people who will preach the good news, that will be emboldened with the truth, Father, who will continue to share the gospel no matter what persecutions come at them. Father, may the love of Jesus be evident in their ministry. Lord, we also pray for Colin Rieger, Grace Buchanan, We pray that you will strengthen that young church. Lord, I pray that the gospel will go forth this morning, that you will save more people in that area, Father. Lord, we also this month have been praying for the IMB, the International Mission Board. Lord, we pray that the missionaries will be encouraged and strengthened knowing that brothers and sisters are praying for them that you are going before them and using them for your glory, that you will not let them go. I pray that their ministries will be fruitful, that more around the world will come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they will love him as their highest and greatest treasure. Father, we pray for the work here in the Dahlgren area and around King George. Father, we pray for the other churches, Lord, that the gospel will be heard this morning, that your people will be strengthened throughout our county. And Father, those who are lost, unbelievers will hear the truth for the first time and come and know what it means to have peace with you and to be loved. Father, we pray that you will renew our joy this morning, the joy of the gospel given through your Son. 
Father, help us to be bold in proclaiming this good news, both to each other. May we speak truth into each other's lives. May we love, may we care, and may we love each other as much as you've loved us. And Father, may it not end with us, but may we seek out strangers among us, those who need to hear the good news, our neighbors, those here in the Dahlgren area, Father, those we come in contact with, may we see them as you see them. Lord, all this I ask in your son's name, the only name worth mentioning in Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 2. And as always, if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, please raise your hand and we will give you a copy of the Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift to you this morning. Psalm 2, it's page 448 in the church Bible. And as you're turning there, just want to remind you what this series is. We're in our third week of our Advent series, The Promise. The first week of December, we looked at Genesis 3.15, the promised gospel. We saw Proto-Evangelium, which is the first announcement of God, of Him overcoming sin and death. Last week, we learned of the promised Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who will make this happen, the one who will overcome sin and death. The promised Messiah will come and save God's people and rescue them from the devil and from themselves. Today we're looking at the promised king, the promised savior, the Messiah, who is the good news promised in Genesis. He is a king, and not just any king. Scripture describes him as the king of kings. This passage in Psalm 2 is about the promised king. This promised king who is glorious, he's uncontested, and he saves rebellious people, and he loves them forever. My hope is that you see this Christmas, that in this Christmas season, it's a celebration of King Jesus, the one who reigns and the one who saves. Please stand with me as I read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want you to imagine two owners. Each of these owners have a large orphanage. These owners are in charge of everything about their orphanages. They make the decisions about the kids, everything about the workers, about the building, everything about the orphanage. These owners have the final say. To help you picture this, let me describe for you the first orphanage. Maybe you've seen commercials on TV asking your help for children who've been abandoned or forgotten or neglected. Real-life, heartbreaking situations. There are actually great ministries and mission organizations who are totally committed to caring for these children in forgotten places. Imagine a children's home like that, which you've seen on the commercial, where the building is full of these precious kids. Workers have been hired to do as much as they can to care and to provide. They're overworked, they're stretched beyond their ability, overwhelmed with the sadness and the cries in that place. Now imagine in this first orphanage where these kids are packed in these rooms, and the owner is caught by the employees taking money that has been donated for the children. And they've been found actually living an extravagant lifestyle while it's uncertain if these kids are going to have another meal. The workers revolt and they report this owner to the authorities and the owner is actually caught with a bank receipt in their pocket that is showing that they transferred money from the children's account into their own personal bank account. I think if you and I were there as witnesses, we would be rightfully appalled. We would want justice for the kids. We would want the full extent of the law to come down on that person. What an evil and wicked leader this guy would be. This person who's in charge has violated the very purpose why they were put in charge. The workers would be justified in turning against that owner. And I think we would agree that the workers did the right thing by going against that leader. Now I want you to picture the other orphanage. It's not fancy, but it has all the equipment and the supplies and the materials needed in the orphanage. It's fully stocked with everything. The kids have plenty to eat. The rooms are clean. The building is in good shape. You go into the rooms and the kids, there's many packed in the rooms, but you can tell that they are loved and they're cared for. Everything down to the smallest detail in that orphanage has been thought of. This owner hasn't asked for a single dime. They don't need any donations. He's paid for it all himself. 
This owner, out of the kindness of his heart, has built this place. He's filled it with everything that the children need, hired workers to care for the children. He pays the workers good wages. And this owner's not the kind of person who gives from afar and then stays away. They are intimately involved. He walks the halls. He goes into the rooms with the kids. He holds the babies. He hugs the children and he feeds them. And the workers come together one night and they plan a revolt. They openly accuse the owner of not being a good leader. He doesn't pay them high enough wages. They complain about not having larger rooms. They want a larger building. They grumble about not having promotions. They accuse the owner of being stingy with his resources. And instead of him running the orphanage, they want to run the orphanage. They think they can do a better job. Without knowing anything else about the situation, we would most likely think that these workers were selfish and ungrateful. This owner in the second orphanage, unlike the other one, out of the kindness of his heart, has taken in these children. He's cared for them. He's loved them like a father. These workers are simply bad workers who deserve to be fired from their job. A great injustice has been done against this second owner. He used his personal resources to care for the children. He's hired these workers. He's given them a living. This owner genuinely cares about the kids and not only talked about it, but he showed it on a daily basis. This owner should be honored, not conspired against. But the owner doesn't fire the workers. He gives them a warning. He tells them that if their plan continues, he'll throw them out. And it doesn't matter if they can find another job or not. He will not hire them back. They've taken advantage of his kindness, and he will not tolerate it. At the first orphanage, the owner got what he deserved. The workers did the right thing in going against that leader. The second orphanage, where the owner is good and kind, is my feeble attempt to explain the beginning of Psalm 2. So often we think of the world like it's the first orphanage. We accuse God of making mistakes and robbing us of what we deserve. Maybe we don't say it, but that's how we react when things don't go our way. The psalmist tells us the world is really like the second orphanage. The owner of that orphanage is God, the creator of the world. The workers are kings and rulers who God has put in place. We are the orphans. God has provided everything we need to live, and in his benevolence, he has lovingly given us all good things to sustain us for life, to thrive, and to be well cared for. In the wealth of his grace and love and peace and goodness, God has tended to his creation like the generous owner of that orphanage. And the psalmist tells us the kings of this world have plotted and schemed to overthrow God. Now, as I look out among you this morning, I don't see any kings or queens. 
None of us are rulers in that sense. But this psalm does also speak about us. In your life, who's king of your heart? Who rules your heart? All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have plotted to overthrow God's rightful place in our lives. And the psalm speaks to God's absolute sovereignty to rule the nations. He is the king of kings. And he also rules over both your life and mine. Now, in case you're wondering how in the world does this passage fit into the Christmas season, am I forcing this psalm into the Advent series? I want to assure you that this psalm is very relevant to Christmas. Luke, the New Testament writer of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, credits Psalm 2 to King David and tells us the psalm is ultimately talking about Christ and his work on the cross. If you will, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. It's on page 912 in the church Bible. Acts 4, verse 23. In Acts, Luke tells of Peter and John returning to the other Christians after being arrested and dragged before the Sanhedrin. The Jewish council released Peter and John after their testimony, but they told them that they couldn't share the gospel anymore. Peter and John tell their fellow brothers and sisters about the ban against sharing the gospel. And these early Christians begin to pray for more boldness. They don't accept that sharing the gospel is an option. They instead turn and pray for boldness in sharing the gospel. Acts 4, 23-31 tells us of their prayer. Please look with me. Acts 4, beginning in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against you, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God in boldness. In their prayer, these Christians quote part of Psalm 2. Never the fact that they are praying scripture that they have memorized, underscoring the importance of memorizing scripture. They say David is the psalmist. And they say that the anointed one is Jesus Christ. And they point to Jesus' death on the cross in their prayer. 
Jesus' work on the cross is the whole purpose why we have Christmas. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark says. He's the refuge from God's fury. Christmas means that God's grace is real and the cross is God's gift to us. And Luke tells us this is God's plan that he established long ago to make happen. A plan to fulfill his promise and defeat sin and death and be worshipped as the truly risen king of the universe. Psalm 2 tells us that the king in this psalm is a glorious, a glorious king. And we know that this king was born a babe in Bethlehem. That was part of the prophecies that we looked at last week. We celebrate the birth of the king of glory at Christmas. And what kind of king is he? We sang earlier, this king reigns in righteousness. This counselor, king from heaven, the government will rest on him. He is the mighty God, prince of peace, this gentle king yet rules with a mighty rod. Psalm 2 is about the glorious reign of the Messiah who fulfills God's promise and defeats his enemies. The psalm begins with the wicked raging against the kingship of God. But look at how it ends in Psalm 2. Look at the very end in verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Christmas is the means by which this king comes to be the propitiation for your sin, the way in which God's wrath against your sin is dealt with. For those who love the son, and for those who take refuge in him. The psalm tells us five glorious truths about Christ's reign. And from that, there are four applications to remember and to submit to. So let's look at the first of the, these truths here. The first truth is to see in this psalm that God is a patient God. God is a patient God. We see that in verses 1 through 3. His patience is seen in allowing rejection of his rule. We already know that God's grace was first given in the garden. He could have judged mankind then, but instead he promised that his grace would restore his creation. We also saw last week when Israel rebelled, and the effects of disobedience were dragging them down into the grave, God promised to save them. And here, even with the nations and the people railing against him and sneering at him, they rejected God's rule. They willingly set themselves on opposite side from him. They are discontent with his way. They want to rip off his authority and they want to assert their right to rule, not Christ's. In all of this, 
God has not struck them down. Even when his own people dishonored him, listen to how Hosea 11.4 describes God's rule. I led with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. God's patience is demonstrated here by waiting for his glorious, gracious plan to unfold, by suffering the disrespect, by enduring hatred in human nature against Christ, and by persevering while his glory is mocked and trampled on. In these three verses, man's discontent turns to resolve and then rejection of God. But to what end? The next verses tell us it's pointless. This shows the narrow-mindedness and the, the lack of understanding that people have, that all of us in this room have. We don't understand the mind of the one who holds the power of life. While man rejects God, we need to see the second truth about God is that he holds all the power to rule. Man may rail, man may be in opposition to him in the first three verses. But then in verses 4 through 6, we see God holds all the power. In his absolute power, it says he has disdain for would-be substitutions. While man is in opposition against him, God doesn't tremble. He does not weigh his forces against his enemies and build his army. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God is a patient, gracious God. We see that in the first three verses. And he's a God who's completely superior to everything else. The nations are as nothing before him. What is sinner's folly compared to his infinite wisdom and power? So verse 5 tells us, A day is coming when he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If you've read the Bible at any time, for any length of time, you know about the coming judgment. But I'm afraid none of us understand the extent of that judgment. None of us understand the wrath of God that will come upon the earth. He has absolute power. He rules over all. Nothing will stop him from accomplishing all that he has set out to do. God is a gracious God and he holds all the power. The third truth in verses 7 through 9, God has given the right for absolute rule to the Son. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God the Father has pledged that a day will come when his son Jesus 
will be crowned as the one who inherits the earth and is king over all creation. Jesus will rule with absolute sovereignty. The one spoken of in verses 4 through 6, it's Christ who holds all of that power. Again, Luke tells us in Acts 13, beginning in verse 32, please turn with me there. It's page 922 in the church Bible. Acts 13, 32. Luke tells us that this coronation of Christ has already taken place when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. James Boyce, in his work on the Psalms, points out that you are my son, And this is my beloved son, were spoken of Jesus by the Father twice during his earthly ministry. And Luke, in Acts 13.32, says that Jesus was crowned King of Zion by the Father when he rose from the grave. It begins with, And we bring you the good news that was promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus rules from on high and is the sovereign king. God is a gracious God. He's a God that holds all the power. And the son is the one that inherits all the nations and he rules with this sovereignty. Number four. God is merciful to those who seek other rulers, yet repent and turn back to Him. While none of us understand the extent of God's power and the wrath that is going to come upon this earth, we also don't understand the extent and how deep God's grace goes. On one side, we have this God who holds all power, all life is in His hand. And the same God extends grace and love to those who have railed against Him. He's merciful to those who repent. The psalm has a warning in verses 10 through the first part of 12. The warning says, Be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. In the midst of such animosity towards Christ, towards God, God is lovingly and tenderly calling all who have rebelled against him to do five things. To be wise, be warned, serve him with fear, rejoice in trembling and kiss the Son. In other words, to love Jesus. The truth is, God has all the authority in the world. He has the power to judge, and His judgment lasts forever. Know how awesome and how just terrible at times God's strength and power can be. Fear Him, it says but rejoice in trembling. How completely counter to our thinking is that? 
Fear God and rejoice in trembling. In other words, fear what God can do. Fear the extent of this power and joyfully submit to Him. The fear in Psalm 2 is not the kind of fear that runs away and gets away from it and hides. This fear knows God's ultimate power and runs under His protection. It's not wanting to be away from His shelter. It's wanting to get closer to God. The closer I am to God, the safer I am. And this happens through the Son, affectionately loving Him as your refuge. One writer said, there is no refuge from Him, only in Him. The fifth truth. God blesses those who take refuge in Him. God is a powerful, almighty God. He's a merciful, gracious God. And He blesses those who have opposed Him and repented and He brings them and He blesses them. There's safety in Christ Jesus and there's blessing in Christ Jesus. All those who trust in Christ are saved and they're shielded from that judgment. And they're welcomed into his kingdom. The wicked are punished. And everyone who stays in rebellion, it says, are destroyed. Now that's strong language in the psalm this morning. But everyone who repents and comes to Christ is given grace. And is blessed. They're saved. And they're loved. And this is a God who never stops giving. His wrath, His power goes on forever. The judgment goes on forever. But His grace overcomes. His love never ends. He's a refuge. Those who have repented are loved beyond measure as children of this great King. They're not treated like pardoned criminals. They're brought into a family and they inherit his kingdom. We're not just out, we're not just paupers in God's kingdom. He brings us in and says, You're my child. I adopt you. All that's mine is yours. And they live in everlasting peace and joy. Don't miss these truths about God in this psalm. Think on these truths. Let them sink deep, deep down into your soul. And then rest on these truths. The psalm begins with sinners and it ends with Jesus being a refuge for repentant sinners. God's mercy of sending His Son is to love them so wonderfully it's hard to even describe. You cannot even go to the extent of his love. None of us can. None of us understand how loving and gracious and merciful he is. To be blessed by God is to be loved by this God. Now from these five glorious truths, there's four responses. These four responses about God and his sovereign rule. First, number one. Do you see Christ in this psalm? 
Do you see Christ as the promised king, the king over the earth, the king over the nations, the king over you? Is Jesus king of your heart? The psalm says the son owns the nations and all who are in them. He has ultimate power. He's the king that you are to bow down to. But he's not an oppressive king. We're not bowing down and he's pressing down on our backs. He doesn't bear down on you. He says his yoke is easy. He's a glorious king, but he's not a selfish king. Scripture tells us this king's throne on earth was a wooden cross. He didn't sit in comfort. He hung in agony. His robe was not fine linen and silk. It was one that was ripped off of him. He was not treated as royalty with humble obedience, but he was treated with contempt and hatred. He was spit on and struck and beaten. This king of kings was mocked as king of the Jews. His crown was not made of gold or precious metals, but a crown of thorns. This king was crushed for his subjects. He was whipped for their disobedience. He died to make them free and bring them into his kingdom. He could have used all his power to stop this, but he didn't. He had a goal in mind to declare those who are unrighteous, to declare them righteous and children. His goal was to love them. Jesus, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, the one who has a dominion that goes on forever and ever, he became a babe in Bethlehem. He endured all of this so that he would die and he would then reign over sin and death. He took sin upon himself and all those who confess and repent of their sin and believe that he is the promised king, they are declared righteous and they receive blessing and love. He rose again and he's now preparing a place for all those who have repented to sit at his table and enjoy a feast that goes on forever. He will be worshipped and we will have joy. Is this king who was bruised, beaten, killed, raised back to life, is he the king of your soul? Is he the one who reigns in your life and guides your steps? I pray that he is. Don't leave here today without seeing Jesus as your king, your sovereign Lord as your refuge from God's wrath to come. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world where Israel would be reestablished and the glory of David would be relived. His kingdom is one that rules in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. I'm here afterward if you want to talk more about that. Next, if you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and your King, it puts you at odds with much of the world. Ever since the garden, mankind has been trying to find a new king. Expect trials and animosity from a world that is in rebellion against our King. 
The world doesn't want Jesus to be the king. And if you're living this way, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's king of your heart, then you can expect trials. This puts you in direct path of attacks, sorrows, and pain. But this should not make you afraid because the odds are in God's favor. In this psalm, God says mercy is for those who take refuge in Christ. This mercy is forever and it's yours to enjoy. Mercy enjoyed is a deep sense of love that nothing in this world can take away your salvation. Mercy enjoyed is singing Christmas songs that fill your soul with hope and with peace. And God calls you blessed. You are blessed to be in the presence of this holy, righteous king forever. So stay the course. No trials are temporary. And the blessings that God has for you are forever. Third, is Jesus the promised king over your family? This means his word directs your paths and determines your family's priorities and daily activities. Does your family submit to his authority? That means his words matter more to you and your family than motivational slogans. Everyone should know that King Jesus has the final say. And his words are loving, they're gracious, they're encouraging, they're protecting. Your children should see you bowing to Jesus and worshiping him on his throne. Walking in his way and being obedient to his commands. Treating others the way that he said with grace and with care. Looking out for their welfare and not your own. Submitting to his reign is filling your home with love for God. There shouldn't be any rivals in your family. Nothing reveals the attitude toward God than to be challenged with his authority in our lives. Hearts of many are exposed when confronted with the spoken and the written word. What can you point to that reminds your family, that teaches your kids, that encourages you that Jesus reigns? Is it family devotions, prayer time, sacrificing what you could do, and giving time to serve others? Maybe it's showing grace to one another when we think they really don't deserve it. None of us do this like we should. None of us do this all the time, so our family needs to see us repenting and trusting in Christ, knowing that He has accomplished all of this. He is the one who God sees, and through Christ, we are forgiven. Our family needs to see us turning to Jesus for His grace and his love, taken seriously the warnings and the call to return to him. Fourth, Jesus must be king over our church. There's a majesty in this psalm that is undeniable. This is a king that has this dominion that continues to grow and to be filled with his glory forever. Jesus ought to be exalted high in our church. 
He must be the one we worship. He must be the one we focus on. He must be the one that we love the most. Not looking to his gifts as the center of our worship or not focused on other people when we gather, but his sovereign rule in our lives. Jesus has to be the most important person to us as the body of Christ. Now, this is not a call for us to begrudgingly center our attention on him. The most tender and compassionate expressions are found in this song are about King Jesus. He loves you and he blesses you. Our hope is in King Jesus. His wrath is quickly kindled. So in him we run. In him we have refuge and we're blessed. We embrace him and we love him. Every ministry then ought to help people embrace Jesus and to love him. If we can't connect a ministry to helping them see Jesus and to love him, to treasure him, to want to be with him, then frankly, we shouldn't do it. We should be open to doing whatever it takes to make this happen for people. We're a young, new church, and we have the opportunity to do this right. We have to stay focused and committed to King Jesus, knowing that his reign is forever. His love never fades, and we are blessed in his presence. May it be so here in Lord willing, whatever church plant, whatever missions, whatever ministries we engage in, let's help each other celebrate King Jesus now during Christmas and all year long. Let's pray.